turn in your Bibles to Psalm 37. If you have the Pew Bible, that is on page 466. Brothers and sisters, please pay attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they shall soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. 
You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear from you this day. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're just visiting with us for the first time, or if you haven't been here a lot this summer, we have been going through a sermon series in the Psalms, and we've been looking at different elements of the worship service. If you look on the inside of your worship guide there on the right-hand side, as we went through our order of service, the things that are bolded there, uh, call to worship, assurance of pardon, etc. those are the things that we have been talking through and addressing. We come now to a section which we started a couple weeks ago. We are looking at the section of instruction, and uh, we're a little bit out of order by God's providence. Uh, Chris was was unable to be with us last week for the heart section. We did head two, two weeks ago, uh, and we were supposed to do heart last week, but now we're doing hands today, and we'll come back to heart uh, in two weeks when Chris preaches on September 3rd. That's okay uh, that it's out of order because there is no exact order. Um, these things are all connected, and we want to highlight that. We want to see how the head, the heart, and the hands are all interconnected, how God's instruction uh, to us is, is all connected. So that is totally fine to so be, uh, be ready in a couple weeks for Psalm 42 as we look at heart. But we'll be focusing on hands uh, today. And Psalm 37 is really a great psalm for, to help us understand how to put the instructions of the Lord into practice. Psalm 37 is a wisdom psalm, and Dr. Mark Futado, who is one of our professors at RTS, he wrote a book called Interpreting the Psalms, and he has different sections uh, in the book on interpreting different categories of the psalms. Under the section for wisdom songs, he explains that we are often confronted in life with choices that we would call the way of, righteous, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. We've talked about that a bit this summer, see that especially in Psalm 1. That's also a major theme here in Psalm 37, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Dr. Furtado argues that through wisdom songs, we are invited by God to make choices that lead to a truly happy life rather than a life that in the end amounts to nothing. Now, nobody wants to live a meaningless and unhappy life, do they? The world has its formula and its messages that are all trying to get people to be happy and fulfilled, right? Everything out there, every temptation, everything that's trying to lure you, every marketing technique is trying to make you happy and, and fulfilled. Nothing out there says, come buy our products so you can be miserable and go sit in the dark, right? 
Ne- you've never heard that, I promise you. Everything is trying to get you to be fulfilled and happy. And that's a good thing, right? But God and his word give us the true blueprint to happiness and joy, to meaning and purpose. And this is not life without struggle or pain or trials or persecutions. That's what the world wants to give you, right? Pain-free, struggle-free. Take this pill, watch this thing, do this, go to this event, whatever it is. And you'll be happy. You'll be fulfilled. All your troubles will melt away. We all know the gig, right? We know it doesn't satisfy. We throw our money at things, and we're not satisfied. What did we see earlier in our New Testament reading from the lips of Jesus? Blessed or happy, it's the same word that is used at the beginning of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, right? Who doesn't walk in the way of sinners. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that contrast. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Dr. Furtado argues that there are two keys to attaining a truly happy life. First is trusting the Lord. It's a major theme in Psalm 37. Trust the Lord. The second is trusting the Lord's instruction. Look at the cover of your worship guide. This is a quote from his book. He says, trusting in the Lord's instructions, instruction entails putting it into practice. The wisdom songs teach you how to put God's instruction into practice in many of the major areas of life, like how you relate to money and how you face death. He lists a bunch of different psalms for each one of these categories. I didn't include them all here, but how you relate to money, how you face death, how you handle your sin and how you use your tongue, and then how you wrestle with the perplexities of life. He lists Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. We'll be looking at Psalm 37, mainly and a little bit at Psalm 73 as well. So how you wrestle with the perplexities of life and how you hope for a better tomorrow. We are a people who are to hope for a better tomorrow, right? Again, not in this worldly way of like, well, it's, it's all going to be good, right? It will, but not in that way. Now, some of us hear this word instruction, and it makes us nervous, especially kids, as you're getting ready to head back to school. My kids are preparing to start school soon here. I have grade schooler, grade schoolers, a middle schooler, two high schoolers, and now a college student. Crazy. Lily is starting her first day of classes tomorrow. So that's really exciting. I've been asking her how she's feeling and, you know, she's excited. But her and most of the kids, I would imagine, have been taking it pretty easy for the last three months, right? Now it's time to get back into the swing of things, get back to the grind. And a lot of you are probably just like, oh, no. Adults, further education. Maybe you're required to do further education through work. Maybe you're seeking further education. Ethan, Ethan's about to start his classes at RTS and get rolling on a huge endeavor, an MDiv program that's going to take several years. Now it can feel like uh, just more information. Ethan's already been to Bible school. He's learned a bunch of these things. It can probably feel like 
yep, been there, done that, learned this before, got to do this again. It can feel overwhelming and it just more information. There's so much to learn. But that's a good thing. It's a reminder to us that we don't know as much as we think we know. We need to be students who are continuing to learn and to grow. But it's not just about information download. Some of you know about the On Wisconsin cohort that I'm a part of leading. We meet with the seminary guys, uh, guys who are going through the seminary program. It's really to work on soft skills. It's to work on those things that, quote, seminary can't teach you, right? Like the hard knocks, the hard things of, of ministry life that you're just not doing because you don't have this hands-on approach. Our goal, the goal of our program is hands-on training. We have guys doing internships in churches and 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 doing ministry, real life ministry as they're studying. I love that approach. My son, Cademan, he's going to be a senior at Valley Christian this year, and he's doing uh, what's called a youth apprenticeship program. He's going to be going to school in the morning, and then he's going to be going to work in the afternoon. He's getting hands-on training in a trade so he can learn and grow, and it's a great approach to learning. Well, what's the spiritual tie-in with this, though? What's the connection to Psalm 37? And I can just sit up here and talk about education and how great these programs are. That's not why we're here, right? The goal is to be wise and to grow in wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied, right? Just cramming a bunch of information from books into your head doesn't make you wise. Going out and, and doing it and practicing it, practicing it, trusting the Lord and his instruction like Dr. Furtado says. Well, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? Just go do it. Unfortunately, this isn't always easy. There's a challenge to get the information from our heads into our hearts and then out through our hands, right? We all know people who know a whole bunch of stuff and aren't very effective in life. They're not wise. They got the information, but they're not using it. They're not putting it into practice. When his Psalms commentary, Peter Craigie, says that the difficulty in most forms of moral instruction is justifying the instruction to the students. It's answering the so what question. He points out how we can learn almost anything by heart if we're given enough time, like memorizing Psalm 37. Psalm 37, similar to Psalm 119 in a little different structure, is an acrostic psalm. For the most part, it's about four lines per Hebrew letter. Um, most of them are two verses. There's a couple that are one verse. Don't need to bore you with those details, but it is an acrostic psalm. Would have been very easy for a Hebrew child to memorize this psalm. It would have been like singing your ABCs, just a really long version of it. But that doesn't solve the problem that the student wants answered. Just having the, the words in your head doesn't solve the problem that the student wants answered, which is why should morality be adopted when it is self-evident that the wicked person seems to get along fine in the world. In other words, God, why should I do the right thing when all I get is opposition from the world and all they get is a carefree life? At least on the surface, right? That's how we often frame it in our minds. And no doubt that's what the psalmists wrestle with, particularly in Psalm 73, which is kind of a parallel to Psalm 37 with the question of why do the wicked prosper? But David writes Psalm 37, interestingly, not as a prayer to God, which many of his psalms are, but as a reminder 
as instructions to the people of God. It's written in the second person singular. You, yourself, your. It's written to an individual. It's not written directed to a group of people. David also has some first person singulars where he shares his own experience. So maybe David was writing this psalm as a reminder to himself. Maybe we should read it that way. Or maybe he was writing it to his children to be read and applied by them individually. Psalm 37 feels very Proverbs-y as we read through it. A lot of the language here sounds like Proverbs. Solomon, David's son, wrote most of the Proverbs, right? He heard his father speak this way. He read his father's writings about wisdom, about being wise. So let's dive into Psalm 37 then, and let's see the wisdom God has for us here in these words of David. Let's seek to apply these things to our lives. Let this be a hands-on training exercise and not just some theoretical information that we're trying to cram into our brains. Now, if you are around here much, if you've been here very long, you've heard us talk about indicatives and imperatives, something we all learned in grammar school. We probably have forgotten. We don't use it much, right? We take for granted our own language. But a reminder to pay attention to the indicatives and the imperatives as we read. The indicatives are just stating what is, like what is true about God, what is true about us. The imperatives are the commands. Do these things. And there's, we're going to see this interweaving that really kind of informs the structure of this psalm. Verses 1 through 8 are all imperatives. And we have an imperative in verse 27 and 34 and 37. And all the rest is indicative. All the rest is declarations of what is true. So I have two major takeaways for us, two encouragements that we'll see interspersed throughout the Psalms. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. The first one is to serve. You can write serve slash obey slash follow, right? All of them serve, obey, follow the Lord. Even when it feels like you are losing and the wicked are winning. Serve, obey, follow the Lord, even when it feels like you are losing and the wicked are winning or prospering. And the second, which we'll come to near the end, is trust slash wait for the Lord. Trust and wait for the Lord, for he is and will be your salvation. Trust and wait for the Lord, for he is and will be your salvation. First, serve, obey, follow the Lord, even if, the Lord, even when it feels like you are losing and the wicked are winning. David really presses this here in the first verse. He puts his finger on the heart of the matter in these first two negative commands. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Both of these words have the connotation of being heated or overly excited. Fret not. Talks about the anger. Other translations, other places, this word is used. It talks about the anger of the Lord being kindled. Don't get too hot under the collar. When someone sticks a camera in your face and says, I'm posting this on Facebook. And is yelling at you and calling you a servant of Satan. I got a little hot under the collar maybe, right? But don't get too heated, right? 
I said, fine, put me on Facebook. Maybe people will come and hear the word of God preached, right? Bring it. I mean, come on, man. Be not envious or jealous. Don't, this word also talks about not getting too heated or too excited. For evildoers and wrongdoers will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. In a parallel psalm that I mentioned a minute ago, Psalm 73, it's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was one of the musicians appointed by David. Notice the parallel language and the themes here. And consider how Asaph probably learned these things by watching David's life. This was hands-on training in the school of hard knocks. The first three verses of Psalm 73 say, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious. Same word as Psalm 37. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph's question is, God, why do the wicked prosper? Why are my feet slipping? I'm living for you. I'm serving you. And all I get is this, right? God, what's going on? He goes on to describe how prideful the wicked are, how they mock God by saying, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? They think they will not be found out. It says that they are always at ease and that they increase in riches. Asaph even laments saying that it is in vain that he has kept his heart clean and washed his hands in innocence. Can you relate to that? God, why should I do the right thing? Right? Why should I seek to live a pure life when I look around and there's prosperity everywhere from those who don't live for you? Now, we don't know the, the chronology or the historical context of most of the Psalms. But is it possible that David wrote Psalm 37 with, with Asaph and his wrestlings with the perplexities of life in mind? Maybe Asaph had already penned Psalm 73. Maybe David was in the temple singing Psalm 73, and he said, yeah, good question, Asaph. Let me put some, let me put some thoughts to that, right? Now, that might be a bit speculative, but I think the beauty of this scenario is, here is the king of Israel and the chief musician, i.e. the pastor and the musicians who are called to lead God's people in worship. And they're saying, we don't have all the answers, right? I don't know. Why are the wicked prospering? I don't know. You don't need a PhD in Bible or a degree in ministry. Because all the learning in the world doesn't free you from the temptation to be perplexed by the apparent injustice and unfairness in this life. We all face it. But do you know what conclusion Asaph finally comes to in Psalm 73? If you're not familiar with Psalm 73, you have to go home and read it. Uh, you really should be familiar with Psalm 73. It's such a vital picture of this struggle and how the answer is found. After 12 verses of recounting the ways of the wicked, Asaph says this, hear this. 
But when I thought how to understand this, the prosperity of the wicked and his own suffering for trusting God, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Yeah, amen, right? Until, this is one of the greatest turning points, I think. There's several key turning points in the Bible. You all know Ephesians 2, but God, that's my favorite. But this one is so key. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. He was perplexed, flummoxed, disillusioned until what? Until he worshiped God. Then he discerned their end. Then he understood that they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Psalm 37, verse 2. Meaning, it's all an illusion. It's all temporary. The prosperity and the ease is not lasting. It's not satisfying. It's not the way that Jesus told us that leads to life. So Christian, follower of Jesus, don't get heated. Don't get overly worked up because God is on his throne. Go into the sanctuary. Then you will get clarity. Is it overly simplistic to say, just come to church? Maybe, but it's certainly not less than that. That's a great starting place. When you look around you and it feels like the world is all jacked up and unfair and God's people are persecuted and reviled, don't sit home, right? Don't sit home by yourself and say, well, it's just hard and this stinks and wallow in your sorrow. Don't do that. Come, worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Enter the sanctuary of God and he will give you clarity. So if you want some practical hands-on application, come to church, right? Be regular in the house of God. Not to please man, but because your soul needs it. Don't listen to the nonsense out there saying, don't come in here, they're serving Satan, blah, blah, blah. Come, hear God's word. Have your soul fed. That's what you need. It's where God instructs you from his word so that then you can go out into the world and you can apply the things that you learn. This is where hands-on training starts. We also have it in our studies and our prayer times together. The How People Change class this fall. If you're still on the fence, come. It's going to be a great time. It's going to be a great time to be instructed in practical ways of how do I change? How do I love and serve other people? How do I mentor other people? Our men's and women's times, our men's prayer time that all of you signed up for 6 a.m. It's okay. I'll be there. But man, I still say nothing good happens before 7 a.m. I'll be there. And I'll be there because it's not about checking boxes. I'm not going to go because, oh, I'm the pastor and I better show up, right? So people think I'm serious about this. It's about availing ourselves to the things that God has graciously provided that we might grow in grace, that we might change, that we might have an impact for Christ beyond the walls of this church. That's what hands is about, right? Go and serve. Go have an impact for Christ. 
Evangelism and discipleship don't just happen, right? We talk about it a lot in the church, but it, it doesn't just happen. Doctors don't just perform surgeries in life-threatening situations because they read a couple books in medical school. Architects, Zach, you'll appreciate this, they don't go and design these amazing houses that structurally work because they built Lego houses when they were a kid in their bedroom, right? Every one of us has to put in hard work in our jobs. Adults in the room, you know that. Kids in school, you have to put in hard work. We have to work to do what we do to the best of our ability. That should be no different in our Christian lives. God shouldn't get the leftovers. David gives a whole bunch of encouraging exhortations in verses 3 through 8. Look at those with me. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Major theme of this psalm. Trust in the Lord and do good. Go out and do good in the world. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. My favorite verse that gets twisted the most, number verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's not saying... Just say you believe in God and he'll give you whatever you want. It's not your desires. It's saying if you delight yourself in God, he will put his right desires into your heart and you will desire what he desires. You don't want to desire what you desire, okay? Trust me. You want to desire what God desires and he alone can put those desires into your heart. You can't make your heart desire things that you only want to do evil, right? Jeremiah says, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? We can't understand our own hearts. We can't understand our own desires. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently. We'll come back to this verse later. Fret not yourself. Again, don't get heated. Over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Verse 9 then serves as a bit of a summary statement and a transition to the next section in the text, which is a long description of the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Look at verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Now, as you read through, we're going to see both of these themes. We're not going to cover all this, but we're going to see both of these themes. This, this promise that the wicked shall be cut off, it comes multiple times. That the, uh, the righteous, those who wait for the Lord, will inherit the land. That occurs multiple times throughout this psalm. And this is the promise of how things are going to play out. This is the inevitable desired outcome. And we see this in every good versus evil movie, don't we? Mission Impossible movies, James Bond movies, Star Wars movies. The good guys always win. And the cynics among us are like, yeah, right. There's no way one guy is going to shoot like 50 guys and not get shot, right? But that sells, right? That's what everybody wants to see. Nobody wants to see the wicked people win in those movies. Everybody wants to see the good guy win. Because that's what's going to happen, right? We're going to win in the end. Now, in these movies, it is cheesy and predictable. But it does keep the audience coming back. But how much more glorious is, is this in real life? 
The bad guys don't win in the end, in real life. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. We need to hear this. We need to be reminded of this. This is eternal destiny language here. Reminders of heaven and hell. Confirmation of the two ways to live that are laid out, again, so clearly in Psalm 1 and confirmed throughout all of Scripture. Saw it a couple weeks ago. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When people try to criticize Christians for being too narrow or even claiming that Jesus was misguided by claiming that he is the only way to God. But this wasn't some novel invention by, G- by Jesus. This distinction is all over the Psalms. Distinctions between the righteous and the wicked. They go all the way back to the early pages of Genesis. Consider Noah versus the wicked people of his day. Noah trusted God. Noah obeyed God's word. Funny that the guy yelling at me out there was like talking about Noah and his, I'm like, well, I'm about to preach that in a little bit. Why don't you come listen? Or Lot versus the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego versus Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Elijah versus Ahab and Jezebel. God's people were to stand, to shine as lights to the nations around them. The nations that did not know God or obey his word. The goal is not retreating and and self-preservation. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, which you've already read. Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Immediately following the Beatitudes then is a reminder that as Christians, we are salt and light. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Christian, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Christian, don't hide your light. Let your light shine. And let the light of Christ in you overtake the darkness of this world. 30 verses later, still in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus told his followers, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Our job isn't to fight fire with fire. We don't retaliate against the wicked in order to defeat them. We win them with the light of Jesus that shines through us as we are poor in spirit mourners who are meek as we hunger and thirst for righteousness and are merciful, pure in heart peacemakers who are persecuted for righteousness sake. I'm sorry, but standing on a street corner yelling at a bunch of Christians coming out of church, that's trying to fight fire with fire. That's not the way of Jesus, right? It's not accomplishing anything. That's not serving. That's not building up the body of Christ. Now it's, it's tough, right? Cause I'm out there 
John with him a little bit, put me on Facebook. I don't, you know, whatever. But we came in and we prayed for him before the service, right? I hope that guy repents and, and turns from what he's doing. But that's not the answer. And he's accusing me like, oh, you're not preaching judgment. You're not, pre well, I'm preaching Psalm 37, which is talking about the judgment of the wicked, right? We're not, we're not hiding it. I mean, praise God for the timing of this psalm and all of that. I don't know. And that's, I mean, again, I lived in China for 10 years. I've seen Chinese brothers and sisters persecuted. That was not persecution. I'm not saying like, oh, that was so hard for me, whatever. Um, but whatever. I'm moving on. I'm not going to talk about that guy anymore. But again, the Sermon on the Mount was not this novel teaching by Jesus. Meaning it wasn't something with no foundation from the Old Testament. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's almost a direct quote from Psalm 37.10, which says, the meek shall inherit the land. There is mention, again, throughout this psalm of inheriting the land five times. Verse 9, verse 11, verse 22, verse 29, and verse 34, with several different descriptors of the type of person who will inherit the land, mostly emphasizing those who are righteous and who wait for the Lord. And for the Old Testament Jew, there was certainly a physical hope of the land of dwelling in the land of Canaan. But we know from Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham and his descendants who died in faith, they actually acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth, and they were desiring a better heavenly country. And so it is with us. We long for the place that we can't yet see. That place that we have been told about. That place that many mock and wonder, why do you waste your time thinking about this place and or anything beyond what we see in the here and now? Anything beyond this material world? Why would you waste your time? I've been reading the uh, Andrew Peterson Wingfeather Saga uh, series with my boys, my young boys at bedtime. Uh, we just finished the first book last night. And I'm not going to give any spoilers. Um, the book has been out for 15 years, so it's kind of like, okay. But this is the first time that we're reading it. Um, but there's a boy in the book named Janner. And he finds a journal in a library that was written by the chief advisor to the king of Aniera. And Janner says to himself, could this be real? And the narrator explains that everyone had dreamed of Aniera's far shores at least once, even those who denied its existence. Yet here he was holding the king's advisor's own thoughts in his hands. Of course, the journal could be a hoax, but like everyone else in Scree, Janner wanted to believe that such a place existed. It's not just children whose imaginations are longing and longings are gripped by this story. I'm just as captivated by it as they are. It makes me long for heaven. In our men's time this fall, we're going to be reading a book called Grounded in Heaven. The focus is on the beatific vision. It's not that we'll just get new resurrected bodies and dwell in new heavens and new earth, but that we will see God face to face, that we will glorify him for eternity. That's what we were created for. That is motivation for the journey. 
That is a promise that fuels our fire and keeps us pressing on when it feels like we can't take another step. And that brings us then to our second major takeaway and encouragement from Psalm 37. Trust and wait for the Lord. I already said this one earlier. Trust, wait for the Lord, for he is and will be your salvation. We saw the commands to trust in verses 3 and 5, to wait patiently in verse 7. Then we see the command to wait for the Lord repeated in verse 34. It says, wait for the Lord, and then this is added, and keep his way. So our waiting is not just this passive sitting around, but it's an active keeping of God's ways while we wait. Now it might sound like a cliche tagline. You've probably heard this before, but the refrain from an old hymn that was written by a Presbyterian minister in 1887 still rings true. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. That's what David has been hammering home throughout this Psalm. And he ends with these climactic verses in verses 39 and 40, lest anyone think that this waiting, this trusting, and this obedience is something that we are able to muster up on our own strength. The reminder is that it doesn't come from us, and ultimately it can't be sustained by us. Look at verses 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. None of us who claim the name of Jesus do so because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of another. Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. We have an alien righteousness. We have Christ's righteousness. It comes from him, our helper, our deliverer, our savior, our stronghold in the time of trouble. The question that we all must answer today is, are we taking refuge in him? Are we trusting him alone to save us from our sin? Psalm 1 gets it right. Psalm 37 gets it right. There are only two ways to live. You are either trusting in the Lord, you are either taking refuge in the Lord, or you are trusting in yourself. If you're here today and you're trusting in yourself, stop, right? Surrender, turn to the Lord, give him your life. It belongs to him anyways. Take refuge in him, turn to Christ. That's what we're about to celebrate at this table. That Jesus bled and died and he gave his life for us that we might live. His body was broken. His blood was poured out on that cross so that we might have life and life eternal. That we might get Christ's righteousness while he takes our sin upon himself. Again, Luther calling that the great exchange. So as we prepare to come to this table, again, we have to answer that question. If you say, yes, I trust in Christ alone as my savior, I am taking refuge from the world from Satan, from myself. I'm taking refuge in Christ and in him alone. 
This table is open for you. You are welcome to come to receive the elements. And if you're not yet there, we would ask that you would refrain from coming forward. But don't just sit on the sideline. We would love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We would love to talk to you about baptism, which is something that we ask that everyone who comes forward would be someone who is baptized, who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church. We'd love to talk with you more about that. 